Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. With the Twilight Histories podcast, you can travel anywhere in the multiverse. Some worlds are familiar. Others are totally exotic. An Egypt ravaged by an ice age. A Carthaginian colony on Mars. A Rome that never fell. If you enjoy history, you'll love these immersive stories that pull you into different worlds. So step on the platform and let's get you on your way. Step into the Twilight Histories Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 25, Preparing for War. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we started the First English Civil War. In August 1642, Charles I, King of England, Ireland and Scotland, raised his royal standard at Nottingham. This was essentially a declaration of war against his rebellious subjects in the English Parliament. A war to protect the fundamental laws of England, to defend his God-given prerogatives as King from radicals who wished to usurp them. He had tried to be reasonable, he had tried to compromise, but Charles was prepared to fight. A month later, the overall commander of the Parliamentarian forces, Robert Devereux, 3rd Earl of Essex, raised his own standard. This was essentially a declaration of war against the king, who had clearly been led astray by evil counsellors, and it was a war to protect the fundamental laws of England and to defend the liberties of Englishmen against arbitrary, absolutist monarchy. The parliamentarians had tried to be reasonable, they had tried to compromise, but they were prepared to fight. After a summer spent preparing for war by seizing castles and munitions and recruiting soldiers, both Charles and Essex were on the march with their armies. Today's episode was meant to cover the Edgehill campaign, but what began as a digression ballooned into an entire episode's worth of words. 
So today's episode will instead discuss what the military forces available to both the royalists and the parliamentarians look like, and how they will develop over the course of the civil wars. We've already seen how both King and Parliament attempted to wrest control over the various militias and trained bands through their own methods. Charles, for his part, fell back on the medieval commissions of array, instruments which he'd last used during the Bishops' Wars. A commission, written in Latin on parchment and marked with the Great Seal, was sent to every county and every large town, empowering local elites to raise forces for the King. Parliament first attempted to pass the Militia Act to take control of the trained bands, but Charles rather sensibly refused to give his assent. So the Militia Act became the Militia Ordinance, which didn't need royal assent. Or at least, that was the view of the parliamentarians. The Ordinance created committees in each county and large town or city to raise forces for Parliament. Both sides insisted that their authority over the militias was the only real authority, and condemned those who followed the other as traitors and fools. Such is one of the joys of a civil war. Both sides soon realised, if they weren't already aware, of just some of the problems of working with militias. In a very broad sense, and this misses a lot of the nuance and variation by region to region, community to community, the King controlled Wales and the west-northwest of England, and Parliament controlled London and the home counties. Both could usually count on the militias of these areas in that they would probably turn up to muster. The problems arose when their commanders actually tried to do something with them. The militias had been deeply neglected for almost four decades at this point, despite some of the efforts of Charles himself during the personal rule. The equipment was out of date, often broken or rusted. The men themselves were poorly trained and ill-disciplined. These would be a problem in a battle, but first their commanders had to actually get them to a battle. These were county or town militias. They were prepared to defend their homes, and maybe their neighbours' homes. But their neighbours' neighbours' homes? Well, that was just asking too much. It was incredibly difficult to use militias outside of their local areas, and they would often hemorrhage from desertion when either side tried. As the Civil War drags on, other methods of raising forces were going to be needed. Early on, the King made use of yet another method with roots in the medieval world. He offered royal commissions to those who could recruit men to his banner. From peers down, many newly founded regiments rallied to the King, for the most influential and wealthy royalists, these soldiers were drawn from their own estates and patronage networks, in a way that wouldn't be out of place a few centuries earlier. At a fairly rapid pace, Charles's army ballooned with regular soldiers, who would, in theory, be willing to march as far as the king ordered. Yet this was a double-edged sword. As the war went on, Regiments increasingly struggled to make up for losses, either from casualties or desertion or anything in between. Available recruits often went to newly commissioned regiments, leaving Charles's armies as a patchwork of regiments far smaller than their formation would imply. Ian Gentles, in his chapter in The Civil Wars, A Military History of England, Scotland and Ireland, 1638-1660, makes the point that early in the First Civil War, Royalists tended to avoid outright conscription, 
The same cannot be said for Parliament, who dispatched constables to conscript as many available men as they could. Parish authorities often tried to ensure that the undesirables of a community were taken into the army, the dregs of society, as Ian Gentles puts it, such as criminals, drunkards, vagabonds and vagrants. But the Ordnance Committees insisted that the men conscripted into the Parliamentary Army wouldn't drop dead after the first mile of marching. Men of old age, boys of young age, the sick and infirm, they were to be left alone. No, it was the able-bodied, but unattached, that the constables targeted. Apprentices, servants, labourers and bachelors. Despite their differences in recruitment, in the first months of the Civil War, both Royalist and Parliamentarian armies were roughly evenly matched in terms of numbers. Gentles lists the pay for these soldiers, and states that they were roughly similar across all the armies fighting in the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. A foot soldier, the backbone of any army, earned about eight pence a day. Dragoons earned a shilling and sixpence a day, and horse troopers earned around two shillings a day. Obviously, it's quite hard to convert that to modern currency, but the important thing to know is that this was far from enough to live off. Even for the cavalry troopers, who were, on the face of it, paid more than the foot soldiers, well, they were expected to supply their horses out of their own pocket. So, they were hardly rolling in cash enough to rub it in the foot soldier's face. Officers were, of course, much better paid. An infantry captain received eight shillings a day, four times as much as the horse trooper. Colonels earned upwards of one pound a day, while the overall commanders of the army, the generals and such, received around ten pounds a day. But even at these lofty heights, this wasn't all for the officer to keep. They were expected to maintain their own staff out of their own pockets, and ensure that the men under their command weren't starving to death. The men who held these officer positions were, unsurprisingly, the gentry and the nobility. The royalists especially had a reputation for sticking to the social hierarchy, and this was certainly true in the early years of the war. In 1643, Charles would appoint six generals to command various forces across England, and most would be the greatest royalist magnates of the regions they commanded. For example, the commander of the six northern counties of England would be the Earl of Newcastle. Beneath these commanders, the colonels and captains were at least members of the gentry, if not higher. As the war went on, however, greater and greater consideration was given to merit, rather than merely social status. The veterans of the Thirty Years' War, just as in Scotland and Ireland, were highly sought after by both royalist and parliamentarian armies. Merit and social rank often combined, such as with the princes Rupert and Maurice, but others would be granted military positions which would be considered far beyond their station before a civil war. Parliamentary forces also started the war with most of their commanders being of a suitably respectable position. The Earl of Essex was joined by the Earl of Manchester and the Earl of Bedford, as well as other Puritan lords such as Viscount Seal and Lord Brooke. But the number of peers which Parliament could trust was much, much lower than Charles could call on. The principle of merit took root much sooner among the parliamentarians, as we will soon see. 
So now we've heard how these armies were recruited, what they were paid, and who led them. I've also mentioned how the militias were neglected, and specifically how their equipment was usually out of date or poorly maintained. So now we get to talk about this equipment, and that means we have to mention the military revolution. We touched on the military revolution during the episodes on the Scottish Revolution, mainly to point out that it had largely passed the British Isles by. This was a trend in European military development which had, over the course of the last couple of centuries, depending on which historian you ask, had led to a greater state control over armies, which were much larger and made much greater use of gunpowder weaponry on both the battlefield and in sieges. Siege works, both offensive and defensive, had become incredibly advanced, with the Trace Italienne system prioritising low thick walls and earthworks to resist the more powerful cannon which were now being developed and brought to bear. Infantry tactics began to integrate both the pike, which, for those who aren't aware, was a long wooden shaft with a metal spike at the end, and firearms, such as the matchlock arquebus and the flintlock musket one of the earliest and most famous formations being the Spanish Tercia. All of this cost an extortionate amount of money, leading to a greater centralising effort by the various governments of Europe in order to better raise revenue. And that is a whistle-stop tour of a historiographical debate which still rages, though I may spend more time on it in a future episode. While some elements of the military revolution were transplanted to Britain, this was rare. In Ireland, more of these developments were visible, courtesy of the far more militarised government there. With the outbreak of the Bishops' Wars, the Covenanters rapidly created a war machine which any Continental commander would look on with approval. Though there was fairly limited combat in both Bishops' Wars, this war machine played its part in both Covenanter victories. In the first, the size of the army which the Covenanters had put together, and its discipline, equipment and morale, put the army of Charles to shame, and convinced his commanders that any battle would be a mistake. Charles had raised this through the commission of a ray, which he was relying on yet again as the First English Civil War begins. In the Second Bishop's War, the only pitched battle during the Covenant invasion of England, the Battle of Newburn, was an overwhelming victory. The short leash Lord General Alexander Leslie kept his army on while occupying northern England was another example of the discipline instilled in the Army of the Covenant. Thinking back to last episode when we heard how the armies of both King and Parliament were looting their way across England, they were acting more like an invading army than the army which had actually invaded two years ago. So, this is all to say that England was far from militarised at this point though there were exceptions. So let's talk weapons. A musketeer was armed with either a matchlock or a more expensive flintlock. A trained soldier could fire, reload, and be ready to fire again every 30 seconds, though in the middle of a battle, having to manoeuvre and being shot at themselves meant that a full minute to reload was much more common. Reloading involved two types of gunpowder. A fine priming charge, which would be ignited first in order to ignite the propellant charge, a much coarser form of powder. This would propel the missile down the barrel and out of the gun and hopefully into the enemy. Musketeers tended to go into battle with about a dozen pre-prepared packages of propellant powder, which hung off their bodies in a bandolier or from their belts. The other main form of infantry was the pikeman. 
As to be expected from a battlefield role which requires you to get up close and personal with the enemy, they were armoured with a cap, a corslet, and tassets for their protection. And when I say up close, I really mean about 18 feet away from the enemy, which was the desired length of a pike. Now this is just what the manuals would demand. Practicality often meant that not only was the pike quite a bit shorter than 18 feet, but long marches and campaigns meant that as the Civil War wore on, it was common for pikemen to discard the corslet and the tassets for comfort's sake. Both of these practical sacrifices, the shorter pike and the lesser armour, would often be regretted when it came to an actual push of pike. These two types of infantry cooperated on the battlefield, though over time the status of the pike as the preeminent force on the field gave way to the effectiveness of the musket. At the turn of the century, armies tended to have twice as many pikemen as they did firearms. Fifty years later, this ratio was reversed, and pikemen increasingly played the supporting role to provide defence to the musketeers from cavalry and other pikemen, to provide shelter to retreating musketeers and artillery, and to storm a breach in a siege. We aren't yet at the stage where musketeers could rally to the cry of fix bayonets, as bayonets hadn't been invented yet, but until that point, the pike will remain vital to defend against cavalry and to seize a defended position. So what about cavalry? Lipscomb notes two main types of cavalry, the heavily armoured cuirassier and the lightly armoured harquebusier. While the cuirassier, named after the armoured cuirass they wore, is the closest we get to a knight in shining armour anymore, they didn't carry a lance. The lance had more or less disappeared from England by this point, and soon the cuirassier would follow suit. The harquebusier were armoured in a buff leather coat and breastplate, and generally armed with a firearm such as a saddle pistol or a carbine, and a sword or axe. Their role was different. The cuirassier was meant for charges against infantry to get in among their formations and to cause havoc. The harquebusier were intended more for scouting actions and picketing. However, as the cuirassier falls out of favour, the harquebusier will begin to take on their role. Cavalry continue to remain highly effective. A third form of horsemen was the dragoon. Technically not cavalry, and not generally used in the manner of cavalry, the dragoons are better viewed as mounted infantry. They rode weaker, lesser mounts, they were armed with firearms, and were used to ride across the battlefield to get better positions, or to where the line needed reinforcing before dismounting. As infantry, they wore very little armour, and few even had the buff coats of a harquebusier. Finally, we get to the big guns. The artillery. Cannons, culverins, sakers, mortars. They came in all shapes and sizes, since there was very little in the way of standardisation at this point. Field guns were intended for fighting battles, siege guns for bombarding entrenched positions and creating breaches, and defensive garrison pieces were manned in coastal forts and in key fortresses. Usually, these pieces were cast in bronze and fired balls of iron. The infrastructure which supplied and forged these artillery pieces was largely in the hands of Parliament by the end of 1642, forcing Charles to import new pieces and to establish new foundries which he would control. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. In terms of tactics, the concept of combined arms doctrine, where the infantry, cavalry, and artillery would coordinate and fight together, was still new. Gustavus Adolphus and Maurice of Nassau had experimented with the idea, notably using lighter artillery pieces which could be moved to support the advance of the rest of the army. But while this would become a central concept to European military manoeuvres in the coming decades, there's very little evidence that the armies of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms used combined arms. Prince Rupert, as an experienced commander, was aware of the concept and did attempt to use it, with varying levels of success. But other than him, most commanders steered clear of the idea. So instead of moving the artillery to support the rest of the army, artillery usually stayed put for the entire battle. The guns were usually placed in front of the rest of the army, so that they avoided blowing up their own side. Though there are occasions when the artillery was placed behind the line, on higher ground, such as at Newburn and Edge Hill. This continued them to keep firing throughout the battle, though how effective they actually were is unclear. They were intended to bombard the enemy at the start of the battle, to demoralise them, and pressure them to advance. 
the tightly packed formations were an obvious target for artillery, as anyone who's played a Total War game will tell you. But, as Lipscomb notes, there isn't much evidence from battlefield reports or from personal accounts that the artillery played a huge role in a battle's outcome. He notes four reasons why artillery played a relatively small role on these battlefields. The first is that artillery was expensive and rare, as were the men with the skills and experience to effectively man them. The second is that because of this, they were spread thin throughout all the armies in the field. The third is that they took forever to reload, upwards of seven minutes between each shot for the largest cannon. Adding to this, artillery crews were naturally concerned they'd blow themselves up, so after a certain number of shots, the artillery pieces would fall silent as they let them cool down. The fourth was that after getting hold of a cannon, finding the crew to man it, and spending half the battle reloading the sodding thing, the shot would only do limited damage to the enemy, even if they didn't miss. The most widespread type of shot was the round shot, the typical cannonball. Now let's be clear, you did not want to get hit by one of these things, or to be any of the guys behind the first guy who was hit. One of the rare accounts of battlefield artillery from the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, from the First Battle of Newbury, Sergeant Henry Foster recounts how, quote, men's bowels and brains flew in our faces, end quote. But while round shot would usually kill anything it hit, it could only hit so much. Grape shot, or canister shot, was much more effective against enemy formations, since this launched a cone of smaller round shot, almost like a massive shotgun. There are records of cases of tin in the arsenals of Essex's army, so the Civil War armies did have access to this. But canister shot was incredibly hard on the barrels of the artillery. It damaged them far more than simple round shot. So it's possible that gun crews or their commanders decided that it was better to keep the pieces in working order than to burn them out in a single battle. And, as I said, the crews were justifiably eager not to blow themselves up. Artillery would be instrumental in the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, but not on the battlefield. Instead, it was in the vast number of sieges to come that the artillery would play their part. Cavalry tactics shifted dramatically over the course of the wars. Again, we need to consider the wider European context and how various systems had developed over the last few decades. Like in England, the heavily armoured cuirassier had fallen out of favour, and tacticians had to establish how best to use their cavalry and mounted troops. Most relevant to us is the so-called Dutch system and the so-called Swedish system. At the beginning of the First English Civil War, we can see a divide in the cavalry tactics used by each side. Royalists generally used the Swedish method, and the parliamentarians the Dutch. But as the war went on, like so many things, this changed, and the Swedish system was adopted by the parliamentarians as well. So what on earth was the difference? The Dutch formation was formed of five or six ranks of horsemen, with gaps left between them in order for the formation to essentially fire by rank, a caracol. The men at the front would fire their weapons, wheel their mounts around, ride through the gap to the back of the formation, and they would reload while waiting for their turn to fire again. It's effective, no doubt about it, 
but it was rapidly falling out of favour, in part because the Swedish system was so effective against it. This was the tactic championed by Gustavus Adolphus, who ordered his commanders not to use the caracol. The Swedish system was very different. Instead of holding a formation of five or six horsemen, the Swedes had a much thinner formation of only three. What this meant was that the same number of cavalry could bring much more firepower to bear at once than the Dutch system. The wider frontage also made the other aspect of the Swedish system so much more effective. Gustavus Adolphus trained his cavalry to charge faster, to avoid firing their weapons as they charged, and to commit fully to the impact of the charge. So not only did a Swedish-style charge more fully envelop the narrower Dutch formation, but the Dutch style had left large gaps throughout their ranks, very helpful for a Swedish formation which could push right through them. I should note that even though the Swedish style called for a faster charge, they wouldn't reach a full gallop. Despite how dramatic it looks, this was an easy way to lose all cohesion in your formation, and losing formation cohesion was an easy way to get you and your men killed. So, you know, next time you're leading a cavalry charge, don't get swept up in the moment. Stick to a canter or a trot. Dragoons were, like I said, used in supporting roles in the battlefield, to reinforce wavering positions, to provide pickets, and to secure strategic points like bridges and hills. We'll finish off with the Dragoons' more foot-bound cousins, the infantry, the backbone of any early modern army. Again, the Dutch and the Swedes put their names to infantry doctrines. The Dutch method, like the cavalry one, was developed and popularised by three members of the House of Nassau, with their most famous being Maurice. Inspired by Roman tactics, the Dutch system used fire by rank. Much like with the cavalry, the men at the front would fire their weapons, before withdrawing to the back of the six-rank formation to reload. This was the countermarch, and it was highly effective against the Spanish Tercio, which it most famously faced. This provided a withering and constant rate of shot, weakening the opposing formation until it was weak enough to be charged by the pikemen and the musketeers with whatever melee weapon they had or the butt of their gun. But the use of the countermarch came with risks, though, as the men had to be highly disciplined and commands be communicated effectively. Else, you risked panic among the ranks, as instinctual fears like, why are the guys at the front running away? And why do I have to go to the front and get shot now? Had to be smothered in training and command. When it worked, though, it was devastatingly effective, as seen by how quickly the Dutch system was adopted across the continent. But then came Gustavus Adolphus, who once again looked at the prevailing system and decided he could do better. And so he did. Again, he prioritised a wide front in order to bring more firepower to bear at once than the enemy. The Swedish style also used the countermarch, but added an extra bit of Adolphus pizzazz. The Swedish salvi. On command, the musketeers doubled the file, and as many men as possible would fire at once. This could, and would, scythe through the enemy ranks, not only leading to more casualties, but devastating their morale. After a successful salvi, the infantry would then charge. Now, it's one thing to be hit every few minutes, but a sudden, massive, loud, explosive volley of fire gunning down dozens of your comrades in just a few seconds? 
Now that's terrifying. What if they do it again? I'd better get out of here. Oh god, now they're charging us. Again, this required a lot more training and discipline to get right, but when it worked, it worked. But in addition to the Dutch and the Swedish styles came the so-called German style. This was in many ways a composite of the two formations, which had been rampaging across Germany for the last few decades. Again, we see a division between the two sides of the English Civil War, with the Royalists using the Swedish style, while the Parliamentarians adopted the German. And again, as the war goes on, both sides will use a single style more than the others, the German. Whatever the specific formation used, infantry in the wars of the Three Kingdoms tended to be used the same way. I'll quote from Lipscomb now, since he puts it far better than I could. Quote, in the advance or attack, the infantry would either keep up a steady, constant fire or hold their fire until well within musket range before delivering a huge, simultaneous volley and falling on the enemy pikemen and musketeers. The constant rate of fire was maintained using the countermarch system. The advance would be undertaken by both pikemen and musketeers. The musketeers would then use the butt-end of the weapon once it had been discharged. If the final charge was successful, the second line, or reserve, was deployed to continue the attack while the front line fell back and rallied behind the second line, where they would reload and form the new reserve. End quote. So that is a quick summary of how the armies of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, and especially those of the First English Civil War, will fight. Next time, we will cover the first great battle of the First English Civil War, as the two armies meet in a field in Warwickshire. Remember to go and give the Twilight Histories podcast a listen. It's brilliantly creative. You can find it everywhere you find your podcasts, and it's definitely worth your time. Thank you to my House of Lords. Vigard Blindheim is now the Earl of Blindheim. Baron Preston is now Viscount Preston. Welcome to Ollie, Baron Halton, and Bell Lord Williams. If you'd like to join their ranks and receive an ad-free feed, just go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Every patron, no matter the tier, gets that ad-free feed. Higher tiers get extra rewards, like last month we had an extra bonus episode on the life of the Earl of Essex, who's going to become incredibly important in the narrative. So if you'd like to learn more about him, go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica, become an Earl, and you'll get your ad-free feed, which you can pop into your podcast player, and get all of the episodes for free, as well as the extra bonus stuff. Thank you as well to listener Lucy, who donated through PayPal. And thank you to everyone who's left positive reviews over the last few months. I haven't been reading them out individually, but I've been reading them myself. They are wonderful to read, and I appreciate every single one. And I also appreciate those people who have told friends about it. Obviously, I can't monitor that kind of stuff, but I know it's happening because I've seen the viewing figures massively increase. So thank you to everyone who has told someone, and thank you to everyone who is now listening to this because one of your friends or acquaintances or colleagues told you about it. I hope they didn't pester you too much, or be too annoying, because, I mean, we both know what they're like. Thank you once again to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful, who provided the interval music used in today's episode, to everyone who's left reviews and shared it with friends, and especially, as always, thank you for listening. Hey. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.